if you can create a team and you can create a culture, then the rest follows. That's Dom Pim, the co-founder of UpBanking, and this is Wild Hearts. <laughs> Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who've backed them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Up is a unique bank. As the first digital bank of Australia, they've launched with a team of less than 30 when many launched with over 100. Up ended expectations of how banks can operate using cloud hosting, continuous deployment, and an ever-expanding list of unexpected customer-first features. Their secret? A magical engineering culture. In today's episode, we'll dive into how Up is making us feel more connected than ever with our finances, what they're doing differently in the engineering team, and how to lead with authenticity within a product team, and so much more. I'm joined today by Dom, the co-founder of Up and the head of product, Anson Parker. They're hiring at the moment. If you're in a data, if you're in a product, if you're in engineering, marketing, keep on the lookout for all things Up. If you are not a customer, by the end, I will be deeply surprised. I had to download it myself, um, get around it. Anyway, uh, without further ado, here is Dom, the co-founder of Up. So Dom, thanks so much for joining me, mate. Let's start by zooming out on the state of neobanks. What's the opportunity as you see it today? I think it's always been a disruptive sort of competitive opportunity. So I think the, you know, we're really in the early stages of neobanks being able to have a material impact on the big banks. But, you know, for UPS, for UPS effort, yeah, we've seen more than $12 billion in transactions. So it's a significant impact that we've made. And we've wow. seen, just for example, over half a billion dollars in people moving their salary from, say, Commonwealth Bank to UP. And so we think we are starting to have an impact. We're only two years into the journey. You know, some of the other neos. Well, Bill, two years, Dom. Yeah, two years. Yeah. Right. yeah, some of the others are still getting just started, you know. So I think yeah. that the, the neobank scene itself has been quite thriving because of the sort of, you know, the changes in regulation, making it possible to get a restricted banking license. Mm-hmm. And we didn't take that route. You know, we didn't go down the path of getting our own license. But yeah, I'm happy to talk about that as well, if that's interesting. Yeah, jump on in. Yeah. Okay. Well, like for us, when we first started the journey, so we, we actually started building banking software nearly 10 years ago. So, so a little bit over nine, I think. And we're working with Bendy on Adelaide Banking Group. And they're the fifth largest, you know, retail bank in Australia, you know, public company, all that sort of stuff. And so we've been working with them at the time for about six years. And we had tinkered with a few of the big four banks in Australia. We did a project overseas in Asia, another one here in, in Australia in Sydney. And what do you mean by tinkered? Tinkered, well, we spent four and a half years building digital banks with them. But, but those projects never came to fruition. So they spent hundreds of millions of dollars, but the products never got into customers' hands. And we got pretty frustrated about that. And we also didn't want to be running like a services business. So we didn't want to be just building technology and licensing it to the big banks. It just didn't seem like it was us. Like we're much more passionate about sort of that customer engagement and helping customers to, you know, de-stress and reconnect with their money and, you know, understand where their money's flowing and, you know, basically sort of financial literacy type stuff, you know, helping people. And that, that's what we were passionate about. So we went to, at the time, the managing director was Mike Hurst and, and I guess the two I see was Marnie Baker. Now, Marnie's the current managing director. So they were two awesome people to be talking to. And mm. we, we sort of pitched them this idea that we could launch a digital bank together and leverage their uh, existing banking license and their existing core banking system, but build everything entirely from scratch. And, and, and my company called Ferocia, like Ferocia is now about 65 people. And when we started that journey with Bendigo, we were probably, well, we were two, when we, two people when we started, you know, like 10 years ago. Mm. But, but, you know, about three years ago or four years ago when up the idea was sort of brewing, we were only about 15, 20 people. And by the time we launched up, we spent a year in a sort of beta, you know, you know, just with staff using it and working with the regulators and working with Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. And basically we bring all the technology they bring the banking license and then together, because we've now nearly been working together for a decade, we have this relationship of trust. We've been able to get the jump on the rest of the market. So UP actually launched publicly in 2018 while the other neo banks were still getting their licenses and still sort of just starting. So it gave us about a 12 month sort of competitive head start. 
which mm. has been you know, really, really valuable. And I think the trust between sort of Ferocia and, and Bendigo in order to be able to even do what, what it is that we're doing is fairly extraordinary. We haven't seen many sort of fintech bank collaborations around the world of, of this scale and of this nature. But, you know, we launched Australia's first digital bank or next generation sort of digital bank. Depends if you want to count ING and Ubank and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we launched mm. the first digital bank in Australia with less than 30 people. And so that in itself is a global milestone because any other mm. digital bank, neobank, challenger bank you look at around the world, you know, they have hundreds of people. So for us to be able to do that, I think the model was unique and it gave us a first mover advantage. And it's been the strength of our ability to actually grow so fast as well. And just so that I understand, Up was an idea inside Ferocia. That's right. Ferocia was a company inside Bendigo Bank. We're not really inside Bendigo. We're an independent company. So we're our own company. Uh, it's a private company. We started the company a little bit over a decade ago. We're a software, a technology company. And we just basically, when I got together with my business partner, Grant Thomas, Tomo we call him, when Tomo and I got together, we started a company about 12 or 13 years ago. And then we sold that company. You know, we exited it. And then we, we started a new company and then that went for a little bit and didn't go real well. And we thought, you know what, let's have a crack at building the best technology team we could possibly build in Australia, maybe even one of the best in the world. Um, wouldn't that be awesome? And here we are a decade later and Ferocia has one of the best technology teams, certainly in Australia and one of the best in the world. It's a small team, but we punch far above our weight. So for example, at the moment, we build the fifth largest banking platform in Australia for the Bendigo and Adelaide Banking Group. Um, we do about 10 billion a month through that platform and have nearly 2 million customers. Wow. And then we also build up, which is the first digital bank in Australia, where we have about 300,000 customers. And we probably, we certainly don't do 10 billion a month. We're probably doing around about nowadays, about a billion or so. So, you know, th th those two projects are of significance and of scale. And we, uh, we build them, design them and support them through Ferocia. So it's, it's, a, it's a fairly extraordinary uh, group of technologists who uh, are just passionate about, you know, delivering awesome outcomes for, for customers. It's quite amazing. And how did you actually sell the idea of Up to Bendigo? Well, I guess because we'd been building their mobile and internet banking platform already, they kind of knew what we were able to do. And Marnie in particular, Marnie's still, you know, she's been our sponsor at Ferocious since day one. And when we, when we took the idea of Up to Bendigo, Bendigo had already been investigating the neobanking market overseas and, and looking locally and seeing, you know, what, what might work. And so it was almost just fortuitous, a meeting of the minds, where we said, we've got this trust relationship. They have the banking license. They have capital. You know, we have all the technical capability and prowess. So the idea of the pitch was we want to build technology-led banking rather than banking-led technology. And it sounds like a subtle difference, but a lot of banks around the world have tried really hard to crack into the technology space and most have failed. Like I ask the question all the time, particularly when I'm presenting with big audiences, you know, ask the question, put up your hand or, you know, let me know if anybody knows of a bank that does technology well. And they're very few and far between. Most of the time it's just mm. crickets. Like, you know, there might be, some people might say DBS in Singapore or BBVA in, in, in Spain. You know, there are a few around the world that have had a crack at it. But nothing of the scale of Netflix or Uber or Airbnb or Amazon or Apple, you know, these, these pure play technology companies. And so for us, it was how do we pivot? And rather than being sort of, you know, a technology service provider to a bank, how do we lead the project? How do we use technology to solve those problems? And that's why we call it technology-led banking. And our view is that it can be so disruptive to the banking industry that within a short period of time, you know, up could be like, Skype or Amazon or, you know, one of those really disruptive technology companies that have sort of taken over, you know, Uber, Airbnb, they've really mm. taken over an industry and you've got like the largest hotel company or the largest taxi company or the largest, uh, you know, online retailer. And, and they've come in almost left of field and disrupted a traditional industry. And we think that we can do the same using technology, certainly in the Australian market for banking. Well, let's sort of break down some of the subtle differences between technology-led banking and banking-led technology. What were, the summer, what were some of the features that were going to spearhead that strategy? Well, the, probably the first cabs off the rank was that we were the first retail bank in Australia to be cloud-hosted. Now, you might okay. say, who gives a crap, right? But banks spend $100 million, $500 million, a billion dollars a year on infrastructure, on networking, a billion dollars a year. Like when, when, you know, when Combank or NAB, you know, redid their core banking systems, you know, they, they spent between them billions of dollars. 
Now, mm. we spend about $150,000 a year on our, on our hosting system. You know, maybe by the time, you know, we scale a bit more, it'll be a million. But it's nowhere near hundreds or billions. You know, like it's, it's nowhere near hundred million. So, so, so that in itself, being able to run everything in the cloud and being able to use automation and automated deployment, automated testing, all of that sort of stuff reduces the sort of legacy overhead of delivering technology. So, for example, when a traditional bank would release software to customers and take a year or six months or even do it in a month. Yeah. Add up, you know, because of Ferocious engineering prowess, we are able to deliver software to customers on average six times a day. So wow. we're, not, we're not building the software and then releasing it six months later or even a month later. We're literally, our goal when we set it up was how can we use this automated pipeline of development? How can we use this, you know, automated testing capability and continuous integration, continuous deployment? How can we use those technologies that exist in other industries and use them in banking? And we've been very successful. Our idea was, could we do five deployments to customers a day, production deployments? That was the idea. And we exceed that at the moment. So we're very proud of that. So that's number one, cloud, cloud. And the, you know, when we first started up, you know, we had to work with the regulators because they were just looking at how, how can banks put a material workload into the cloud. So that was the first one. The second one was that nobody wants to wait around for two days, three days, five days or 10 days to open a bank account, right? So we were the first bank in Australia. It's hard to believe. There's about half a dozen now. But we were the first bank in Australia to have instant issuance with Apple Pay. We then spent about another year working with Google and then we released it with Google to have instant issuance with Google. Now, what, and then we did it with Samsung. So, so to be the first bank in Australia to offer instant issuance, what it means is that you sign up a bank account online and you can do that in a couple of minutes and then you provision your digital wallet, whether it's Apple Pay, Google Pay or Samsung Pay, instantly. Now, imagine three years ago, no other bank in Australia did that. So we mm. came along and we did that and we were the first bank where you could open a real bank account in less than three minutes, just by downloading the app from the app store and putting in your details. So, right. so, so that, that, that changed the game. And now we see many banks who have followed that. And, and you know, obviously we didn't build that technology exclusively with Apple or, or Google or Samsung. You know, it's, their, it's their capability that they had rolled out in other countries. And we might've been the first in Australia to do it. And now there's a whole bunch of others. So that were probably the two, I guess, demonstrable uh, examples of things that we did where technology made a huge difference. And then I'll just give you one more because I want to talk about user experience. Mm. You know, using a bank is pretty boring. It's pretty crap. We wanted to make banking fun, exciting, interesting, and engaging. And so, for example, more than half of our active customers deposit their salary into UP. Why do they do that? Other neo banks all around the world are struggling to get people to use them as their primary bank. So, so why are people doing that with us? Well, we have a feature that automatically splits your pay as it comes in into all of your different life sort of savings buckets um, and put some in your spending account, some in your, you know, you might say add an additional contribution to your super or you might put some into a long-term savings account or you're saving up for a car or an iPad or whatever. And so because we have these sort of capabilities, no other bank in Australia has that capability. So by us building that and bringing that to market, that user experience is really awesome. And, and, and one other example related to customer experience is the ability for customers to do something they've never done before. So for example, we invented this idea, we call it pull to save. And you just pull down on, on your activity feed on the screen. And, and what happens instead of it refreshing, like every other bank, we use technology so that it's auto refreshed. It's always up to date. It's a real time feed. So you don't need to pull it down to refresh it or pre press a button to refresh it. So that sort of freed up that, that gesture, if you like, that mobile gesture for something mm. cool. And the something cool is what we call pull to save. So if you pull down on your activity feed, the first time you do it, you might be surprised because you think the screen's going to refresh. And then you see that the money literally jumps out of your balance, the spare change, it jumps out of your balance off the screen and then comes flying back into the screen and goes into your saver. And so you save your spare change. And if you've already got your spare change saved and you've got a round balance, then it saves a dollar. Now we've seen over 50,000 upsiders in the first few weeks use that. Um, and now we've seen over a million pull to saves and we only launched that feature about a year ago. So, right. so to see that level of sort of engagement um, with something that doesn't exist with any other bank in the world is, is what we mean by technology led banking. Mm. And we, so you had these insights, were they locked inside Benigo Bank and it was just a matter of speed that unlocked them for up? Or did you have to go to the market, learn from customers, talk about how you earned those insights? I think the probably, you know, it's best explained by the fact that right now we build both the Bendigo Bank platform and up. 
And what yeah. we're able to do is that all the things that we want to do that require a direct feedback loop with customers, we can innovate on up first, if you like. You know, we can do things where we have a direct interaction with the customer. So we launched the pull to save feature for our staff, and then we released it out to customers and they just loved it. And so then we sort of rolled it out more broadly and now we've enhanced it and taken advantage of, of what it can do. And so I think that, you know, the next stage for us was to get your spare change out of your, out of your sort of activity into your savings account. And then the next stage for us was making the savings account interactive. So what we did is we built a physics engine inside the actual app using the capabilities like the gyroscope and, and the gravity engine within your iPhone. And then what we did is, is, is we made it so that you could feel your money sort of wobbling when you shake your phone around. So if you pick up your phone <laughs> and you shake it around like this, you can feel the money shaking around. <laughs> inside your phone. I have. And, and, and it sounds like a gimmick, but what it does is it talks to our mission. So our mission is to take people from you know, a state of anxiety and, 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 and where they're concerned and, and unsure and confused into a state of connectiveness, into something, you know, financial literacy, like where people feel comfortable and connected, you know, reconnected with their money. And so by being able to pick up your phone and shake your piggy bank and feel the money tapping against your palm, mm-hmm. it's actually, it seemed like it was almost a gimmick, but that's using technology to create an interaction, a user experience that didn't exist with any other bank in the world. And so those kind of innovations, they might seem small, but instant access, reducing cost and efficiencies through using the cloud, you know, delivering a digital wallet across all the majors. We did a world first last week with Apple. We were the first bank in the world to, I was going to say company, but there may have been some others. We're definitely the first bank because Apple <laughs> sent us a confirmation. So we're the first bank in the world to implement a new feature that really just allows you to do that instant issuance that we launched two years ago, but from within Apple Wallet. It's a new feature that came out with iOS 14. And since Apple announced it, I don't know, maybe six months ago, we've been working away in the background uh, building it. And then on the day that, you know, iOS 14 became sort of, you know, released publicly, we we released that capability and maybe it was a few days later or whatever. Um, And so we became the first bank in the world to have that capability. And it's an incremental improvement on what we released two years ago, but it leverages some technology that Apple have just recently announced and then released. And so for us, if we can stay ahead of the game and keep using technology, technology to innovate, then customers ultimately benefit and, and, and customers become the beneficiaries of that sort of innovation. Um, and so when we look at, say, how can we be competitive or how can we innovate against the big four banks in Australia? Well, that's exactly how, because there's no way at all that they can keep up with us. You know, we are a small team that's very agile, very dynamic, very innovative. You know, we all sit next to each other at the moment. We're at home with COVID and all that. You know, like yeah. the team actually have Zoom on. And we'll have, you know, 30, 40 people in a Zoom just in the background, just for that feeling of connectedness, you know. But because we're such a small team and we basically either sit next to each other physically or virtually, we're able to communicate and innovate and then deliver things very quickly, which no big bank is able to do because there's too many departments, there's too many barriers, you know, people are too remote and too distracted. So it just becomes very hard for them to even keep up with us. Mm. Now, Don, why are people anxious about their money? That's a good question. I think that it's something that has evolved over. I mean, I'm not an expert at it. I just think it's something that's evolved over the last couple of decades. When I was a kid, we had a lot of coins, you know, and, and, and they were heavy in your pocket. And you, so you knew you were conscious they were there. You'd get home, you'd take them out of your pocket and you put them in a piggy bank. You know, I did that for 10 years or 15 years or so. And then I got a hammer and I smashed my ceramic piggy bank and there was hundreds <laughs> of dollars in it, right? Now that's a feeling of truth, right? That's a feeling of, you can feel the weight of the coins in your pocket. All of that's gone away in the last couple of decades because we've had debit cards and credit cards. We've had, you know, uh, removal of physical cash and people in Australia about 90% of point of sale except a, a digital wallet or a plastic card. So, so there's no reason for people to carry cash. So my theory is that people have just become disconnected with their money over time. And what we've been trying to do as part of our sort of mission is help people reconnect and, and, and realize, like I teach my kids, you know, something like the, you know, the barefoot investors, if you read the book, you know, says, you know, have okay. three money boxes, not one, right? You know, and, and, and put one, one, one dollar in for saving, one dollar in for spending, one dollar in for giving. You know, I teach my kids those sort of things, but it's easy to do that with physical money. So when we built up, you know, what we said is we want to have multiple savers. We want people to be able to instantly create savers so that they can have one for giving, one for saving, one for spending. You know, they can save up for an iPad or a holiday or a house or whatever it is they're saving for. And we became, again, the first bank in Australia to pay bonus interest on all of your savings accounts. 
Now, most people didn't even know. Like most people couldn't open, could only open one savings account with a bank, or if you could open more than one, you're only eligible to earn interest on one. I mean, it's just dumb. It doesn't make sense, yeah. but it's limited by those legacy systems. So we said, right, well, what if we could pay interest on the aggregate, all of your savings across all of your um, savers, then my kids could implement the feature that we used to do physically. So instead of using a jam jar and putting coins in it, now they can actually save with up. And so you can save your spare change, you can save your roundups, and you can literally do a pull to save and move those coins into your savers. So I think that thinking more laterally around how humans used to engage with money and then trying to bring that into the digital world has made an enormous difference to the way people feel connected with up. You know, people feel like when they're using up, we get messages every day. So we're the highest rated banking app in Australia in both the App Store and the Google Play Store. And that's not because we've got our mates who have given us a rating. That's for more than 15,000 people who have rated us, right? So so 4.9 in the App Store, I think 4.8 today. We were 4.9 because it moves around. It's extraordinary, right? And the reason is, and the me- well, I won't go into the reason, but the messages that people give us every single day is that they say to us, I've never felt more connected to my money or I never knew I could save or I can actually see where I'm spending my money or I feel like I understand my spending habits better. Like These sort of messages that we get from our customers are validation for us that we're doing something right. If people are disconnected, they go to up to be connected. What are some of the things that you've noticed in their behavior that's changed? Well, for example, the, there's two interesting things to maybe talk about there. One is that we have you know, another feature that we created. We invented this idea of something called upcoming. And we're the first bank in Australia to predict your upcoming spend. Now, mm. we have over 150,000 merchants that we've identified. We've been working on that technology for seven years. It's not something that we just oh. did on the weekend. And so we can recognize (laughs) every single transaction merchant and then we can auto categorize it and we can auto allocate it and we can then also auto predict. So it's easy, for example, uh, nowadays there's a few other banks doing it, but it's easy enough to say, right, Telstra, okay, well, it's probably a mobile phone bill or whatever. But, you know, Netflix, you know, you have a subscription with them. That's pretty easy too. But what if it was, say, for example, you buy petrol every week or every fortnight um, and we can recognize that pattern and then we can predict that for you. So we basically have this capability we call upcoming and we detect all these regulars and then we, we sort of present them to the customer so that they can plan for the future. Now, the customer has no interaction in that whatsoever other than if we prompt them to confirm. So sometimes mm. we might prompt and say, is this Netflix subscription recurring monthly or quarterly or annually? Now, with Netflix, we don't have to do that because we know that they're recurring monthly. But with, say, you your phone bill, you might be paying it monthly, you might be paying it quarterly or your electricity bill or your gas bill or whatever. And so other than that prompt, the customer's done nothing. That It's not like a pocketbook or Mint or Myob or something where you have to go in and classify all the things and set up all the recurrings. It just happens automatically. So that's point number one. So basically the customer can see all of their future spending. Point number two would be the level of, and, and sorry, I meant to say on average, we our customers have nine of those upcoming items identified. And there's wow. about there's about 50,000 customers that have achieved $100 million in hitting their savings goals. So that's the second one I want to put. Right. So, so what happens is, and I say $100 million, the last time I checked it was 97, 98, but I'm pretty sure it's close to $100 million, right? So, so, so since up launched two years ago, we've created around about 600,000 saving accounts. So we've created nearly a million accounts in total. So about 300,000 spending accounts like debit cards, you know, and then around about 600,000 each off the top of my head, um, savings accounts. Now we've only got 300,000 customers. So you can imagine that each customer has around three bank accounts, right? But some customers only have one and some customers have a hundred. And so what we've seen is that the customers that get really connected with their money create 20, 30, 40 different savers to run their entire life. Another feature that we invented, again, no other bank in the world has this feature. We, we created it. It's called uh, covers and forwards. And what it allows you to do is that when you buy something, you can actually cover that purchase. So for example, you don't get embarrassed at the checkout. So for example, when you're doing your weekly shopping, you go to the checkout and you scan your phone or you scan your card and you get the error insufficient funds. Like it happens to all of us and it's happened many times before. It's pretty crap. You've got to then log into your bank and you've got to then transfer money from your savings. Around the weekend. And then try again, right? It happened on the weekend, right? So it happens all the time. So we created this feature called covers. And what covers does is you can nominate your savings account to cover your purchases. And you can cover your purchases by um, the type of uh, merchant that we identify 
Spotify or the type of payment or whatever. And so that means that you can cover when you're paying for something. The other thing we did is we flipped it the other way and we created this thing called forwards. And the idea is that money should be as easy to interact with as email. So if you get an email coming in from your brother, you can just forward it to your sister. So same thing with money. So if money comes in from your brother into up, you can forward it to your sister, you know, or to whoever. Mm-hmm. And so covers and forwards are a unique feature. Those covers and forwards encourage people to create more savings account and earn interest on their money in their savings account and then cover the purchases when they need to. So at the moment, we've released what we call manual covers, where you make a transaction and then you choose the uh, saver to pull that money from. But what that's done is created a habit where, like I said, some customers have 20, 30, 40 savers. So in summary, Customers are seeing their predictive spend on what they're going to spend in the future, an automatic budget, if you will. And then customers are setting up all these savers to save for their life goals and to help them power their life. And then they're able to easily cover and forward money in and out of those savers. So what we've seen is nearly $100 million of savers have a goal. You can set a goal for each saver. So if you're saving up for an iPad, you can say, okay, the iPad is 600 bucks and you can set a target. So we've had nearly $100 million worth of customers achieving their savings goals in just uh, the last two years. And so I wow. think that they're the two probably biggest behaviors that we've seen in terms, I mean, Anson will have heaps more because he's the product mm. guy, but off the top mm. of my head, they're two that I think are really fascinating and they're behavioral chains that we've seen. Now, listen, you're, you're the first to do many different things. It's your, your team of builders. There seems to be engineering magic inside up. Talk to the culture of that team. I mean, t- to me, so first of all, I'll start with, whenever we talk about culture, my business partner and I, set up the business, not with a goal of fixing banking or, you know, necessarily building technology. It was more about building a team. So the, mm. I remember we were sitting in his kitchen and we just sold our previous company um, and we we're sitting there saying, what are we going to do next? You know? And we said, you know, rather than maybe working on a specific project or, or setting ourselves up as a specific type of company, why don't we just find the best people that we've ever worked with in the world? Now, I had the fortune of living and working in the UK and Singapore and Japan and the US, worked in Silicon Valley, all that sort of stuff. And, and so, you know, our idea was, can we sort of get together a collective of the very best people that we've ever worked with? Um, and often you'll hear this sort of adage about, you know, a team of champions versus a championship team. Mm-hmm. We are exceptionally fortunate that we have both. Highly unusual. So, so the caliber of the people that we have, we have some of the very first participants in companies like Shopify or Square or locally Envato, for example, you know, two of the very first, I think the first six people that were at Envato, both engineers now work at Ferocia. So, so, you know, we've got, you know, the founders of the conversation. So, so a lot of the engineering talent and a lot of the design talent, the product talent have already built some of the most valuable and the best technology companies, not just in Australia, but around the world. You know, one of our engineers left our previous company when we sold it moved to San Francisco and worked at Square for six or seven years, maybe even eight years. And then, you know, right from the beginning of Square through to uh, when Square was thousands of people. And he was the head of the uh, director of engineering right by the time he left. He's now come back, moved to Melbourne and joined Ferocia. And so that cap of people working within that team. And at the same time, we have this extraordinary culture. And it doesn't happen by accident. It happens because my business partner is an ex-AFL footy coach. And so, you know, he spent his life training you know, kids starting at sort of 14, 16, 18, up until they were 32, 34, 36. So, he, you know, the way he used to describe it to me is he'd spent 18 years of their lives helping them to be better humans, mm. not to play football. Playing football was an outcome. Winning premierships was an outcome. If you can create a team and you can create a culture, then the rest follows. And so for us, we wanted to take that sort of idea into building a technology company. So we ended up with this great talent because everybody wants to work together uh, and everybody wants to work in this culture. And we do a lot to maintain that. So, you know, we run, for example, what we call Tomo Time because Tomo has the footy coach. Tomo Time is a monthly sort of culture and connectedness sort of um, session that we run. Um, and we give each other practical feedback. We do exercises like stop, start, keep, or we do triple H as we call them, which is uh, hero, hardship, and highlight. You know, we, we, we run these sessions with our staff even during COVID. We do it all over Zoom during COVID, but we would run them every month. We have a personal fitness trainer and a masseuse at the office, um, and we have our own gym at the office. And it sounds, you know, whatever, a lot of companies have a gym now, but we would do workouts with our team 
and, and then we would work out together. We would eat lunch together. You know, we'd play games together. We'd play Mario Kart a lot. And, and you know, we, the world champion came to compete against us in, in Moomoo Meadows at a, at a computer conference <laughs> or a gaming conference called PAX. So 100,000 people at this gaming conference over three days at the Melbourne Convention Centre, you know, Jeff Shedd. And, and, and we were there, all of the ferocians, all the upsiders. And we were playing the world champion and also the Australian national champions for esports in Mario Kart. And so we play computer games together and I play computer games with the team every day now, me and my son, you know, while he's been home from school during the pandemic, um, we literally log on and we play Mario Kart against the guys at Ferocia and they're all at home or guys and girls. And, and so I think playing computer games together, doing cultural sessions together, doing workouts together, eating meals together, all of that contributes to the culture. It's not something that magically happens. Uh, it's mm. something that is deliberately worked on and improved. And the other thing I'll say is that Tomo is adamant about high performance and, and high performance means pursuit of excellence forever, forever improving, forever iterating. You know, we have some of the best software engineers in the world working at Ferocia. They don't consider themselves the best. They consider themselves good and always improving. And I think that's why they're the best because Mm. they're always trying to be better. They're always like a constant learning, never thinking that we know everything, always reading Mm. books, always uh, attending seminars, always mentoring other people so that we can learn through our own mistakes always helping each other you know those are the sort of things in my view that that create the culture that we've been able to develop and you know ferocia is exceptionally fortunate to be sort of 10 years into the journey and 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 still be attracting that level of talent you know we've never used a recruiter we just recruit by one degree of separation people hear about how awesome it is they approach us nowadays as we've grown we're about 65 people now so as we've grown we get a lot more inbound inquiries. You know, people say, oh my God, it's so amazing what you're doing with UP. We'd love to come and work there, you know. And, and we get these amazing approaches like one engineer recently integrated with our API. So we launched our API for UP. Within a few days, we had thousands of people already, you know, with an API key and building, building apps. We've had over 600 apps already developed on top of UP. Um, and it's only been available for a couple of months. But, you know, someone jumped on and built an entire web interface for UP and then sent that through to us as like their resume. That was like their application <laughs> for a job. They're like, hey, I used your API to build yeah. you a desktop banking thing. Can I have a job, please? You know, like that's the sort of cool stuff that I think. That, Show don't tell. Yeah, no, like it's just amazing, you know. So, yeah, so we're very fortunate to be able to leverage that. And, 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 but I just wanted to make the point for everybody who's listening. It's, it's not something that happens by accident, something you have to work very hard at. And it's something that you have to regularly review and improve. So, you know, Tomo and I speak every single day and nearly always when we're speaking, it's about our staff. Mm. It's about how do we, you know, how do we manage diversity or how do we help our staff to learn new skills or how do we help our staff in life, like with fitness or with health? How do we help them with mental health? Uh, How do we uh, help them to be better people and to mentor each other? You know, those volunteer their time. You know, Anson and I, we're volunteering our time recently to uh, pet rescue. Uh, and it's not by coincidence. It's because one of the, one of the I think, founding people, but you know, maybe CEO or general manager, is a huge upsider uh, and reached out to us and, and, and you know, said, look, with all this uptake of, of pets during the pandemic, you know, we're, we run off our feet and we want to run a, we wanna run a uh, sort of hackathon uh, and we love what you guys do. Can you help? So, you know, Anson and I volunteered our time to help out that organization. And I think that that's the sort of stuff, giving something back to the community and being part of the community that contributes to your culture mm-hmm. and, and, and makes people aware that everyone's welcome. You know, up is for everybody um, and anybody, you know, we, we obviously have a young skew. We have a young, uh, so uh, maybe it's not obvious, but we definitely have a young skew. Like our, we have about a 50-50 gender match. We have a, a national presence with about 80% of our customers in the capital cities and about 20% regional. And, and what we see is we've had upsiders sign up from using over 150 different passports, you know, so foreign nationals living and residing in Australia. We've seen up used in over 185 countries across the world. You know, we don't charge international purchase fees. So people like using up for online purchasing and, and when they're traveling. And, and, and so that level of sort of diversity of, of culture, that diversity of background and interest contributes to what up is. But anyway, 50% of our customers are aged between 16 and 25. So it's a very young skew. And our view is, is if we can create up to be a sustainable business, then over the coming decades, we can grow up with our customer base. And the services mm. and products that we offer will actually, you know, endure over the decades. We didn't set up up, you know, we never raised any um, investment or venture capital or anything. We didn't set it up to do an IPO and all that sort of stuff. We set it up 
to essentially be the number one bank in Australia for under 35s. And that's going to take decades. That's not something that we just do overnight. Um, and so we need to create this engagement. So my, my point was simply that there's an enormous range of different types of people from different backgrounds that are actually that love up. And we've even got someone, I think, that's 99 or a couple of people that are 99. So from basically 16 to 100, any, anybody can use up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you, your culture is very much reminding me of an awesome book by Bill Walsh, The Score Takes Care of Itself. And it's really all about focusing on the inputs and the processes. And I'd love for you to sort of talk a bit more about some of those processes, especially as you've scaled the team from 10 people to 65. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Like there, there are like things have to evolve in as you scale in order for you to maintain that level of connectedness and that sort of uh, that internal culture. I would say that you know culture is something that is pervasive externally as well and visible if it's done right internally. So, for example, one of the areas where we've done a lot of work recently has been in recruitment because our onboarding process used to be a GitHub repo uh, where you could just log in. There's a bit of a wiki there, and everybody's sort of self-served. And we got a lot of feedback from people that, you know, they hadn't joined a company where they turned up, all of the equipment and everything was ready, and they were literally writing code on the day they joined. And that was fine when we were 10 people, 20 people, 30 people, and you had on one side of you was an engineer, and on the other side of you was a product person or a designer. Now, that was easy, right? But as we've scaled a little bit beyond that, and we've had to add people in different areas of the business, like customer service, or as we've scaled up our product team, for example, our marketing team, you know, as we bring new people on, what we had to do was build processes to help with onboarding. So our head of marketing actually put together a, because he was growing the marketing team, put together a bit of an onboarding pack, which, you know, normally, so for example, when we hire someone, either myself or Tomo interview every single person that ever works with us before we hire them. Mm. So we maintain that level of connectedness right up to the sort of founder level. And, you know, that means that we know people by name, we know their partner, we know their kids, we know the name of their dogs and cats. And that, that, that's important when you're small. As you grow, that gets harder. So I still interview everybody. I do the last interview for whenever we bring anybody on board, but I don't, any longer spend three hours with them in person, taking them through, you know, what it means to be a ferocious or what it means to be an upsider. And, mm. and, and, you know, I, I can't personally sit next to them and take them through it all. So Paul put together a bit of an onboarding pack that shares with them some of the things we were talking about. You know, what are the things we do monthly? What are the things we do weekly? Where are the resources and all that sort of stuff? And it sounds obvious and organizations like Atlassian or CultureAmp or, you know, these larger companies that are more established, of course they have all that stuff, but we didn't have that. So for mm. us, it's like we have to develop those capabilities and improve those processes as we, as we grow, as we scale. The other thing is one of our engineers, we, we use Slack a lot, for example, to communicate, even if we're in the office, if you're sitting next to each other. And so one of our engineers built a plugin for Slack. And what it does is um, it basically introduces you to another ferocious or another upsider sort of randomly and then suggests a day and time for you to have a coffee together. And so you're sitting in your own house and you're having a coffee or a beer or whatever you want to do. And, and, and you, you get sort of this introduction and, you, and, and what it does is suggest a topic. So we call that the barista and the barista was just a little tool that was developed by one of our engineers. I've loved it. And I do about two or three baristas a week where I just talk to staff about how they're coping in the pandemic. You know, how's their family, you know, the kids back at school, you know, and I don't drink coffee, but I'll drink a mineral water or something else, you know, while, while they're having that. Yeah. And, and so simple things like that have helped us to stay connected while we're all remote and use Slack and use Zoom and use other tools like that, you know, to be able to maintain that level of connectedness. I think the other thing has been mental health. So our physical trainer, Babs, his name, Babs is awesome. And he, he used to work at the St Kilda Footy Club with Tomo when Tomo was a footy coach. And he was the sort of one of the trainers there. Um, and he came over to Ferocious and, and he used to walk around the office and he'd give someone a massage or tap them on the shoulder and say, you know, let's go for a, do some box exercising and do a workout or whatever. And when you're in the office, that's really easy, right? But then when everybody was at home, suddenly Babs jumped onto WhatsApp. I don't think you'd ever used it before. And he's on WhatsApp and he's WhatsApping people and saying, how are you doing? How are you feeling? You know, let's have a call. And then he would get in touch with them. And then he'd spend an hour with all the different staff and just talk them through their issues and make sure they weren't depressed or make sure they weren't you know, suffering from any sort of mental anxiety. And, and, and so his job actually changed from sort of pumping iron to helping people with their mental health, you know? And he's, he, you know, he's trained in Tai Chi and, and Pilates and yoga and all sorts of things. And so he started doing remote sessions with people and helping them, you know, to exercise and, and all that sort of stuff. And so I think that those sort of things that have changed over time, we've been able to maintain who we are and maintain our identity, but do it remotely, you know, and that's been amazing. That is amazing. Dom, thank you so much for your time. 
you know. I'm conscious. So, so I'm, I'm super appreciative for you joining us on the podcast today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Great questions. Thank you, mate. And now it's time to listen to the head of product, Anson Parker. Chief Imaginer, that really is the coolest role. How, how did you even come to that? <laughs> no, no. That is certainly not a job title you give yourself. <laughs> I don't think. Like, you'd have to be a pretty special kind of person to, to give yourself that job title. That is, that is 100% Dom. Dom Pim, who you just spoke with. I mean, I, I think the, the thing is, you know, product is not a massively mature, you know, space. It's only really been around probably 10 years kind of a, as a formal sense. So whatever you were doing before you were a product person, uh, it wasn't called product, right? It was probably called design or maybe project management or something else. And so that was my background too. I was like just always just kind of bouncing around doing different things, like never always knowing there was a part of what I did that I really liked, but not knowing what that was called. And that sort of became, that kind of distilled and became more, more and more clear you know, certainly around the time that I started working with Dom and, and he was like, this is what you should be doing for us. Like, this is what you can, you can help us with. And I'm going to call you the chief imaginer. And I'm like, Ugh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, in so, yeah. your role as the head of product now, oftentimes there's a tension between people who are super creative and then who are operationally excellent and just executionist like machines do you just happen? Are you are you fortunate to, to have both, or do you sit on one more totally. side? And how do you sort of like oh. mitigate any weaknesses or or optimize for your strengths? Yeah, so I'm totally more of the you know the creative less less kind of uh, process like every every little detail piece right, and that's that's probably annoying for people right. You got to at least you've, there's a lot more pressure on you because a lot of people want to be that. Like, oh, I just want to throw out the ideas and and uh, I don't want to worry about the detail. Like, I want other people to do that. So, I mean, that's the that that's a lot of the hard work. And like, I think I'm okay at that stuff. Or like, I'll do it. But I, yeah, I'm fortunate to have you know other people in the product team that are awesome at that stuff. And certainly in in banking, you need there are a lot of problems that are like let's just put this into a flow chart and really get, get this finely churned. You know, it might be transaction disputes or, you know, onboarding and KYC, like there's stuff where you really do have to, to get all of that detail, right. And it's super nuanced. So yeah, I, I'm probably, that's not definitely not my strength. Like I'll, I'll happily admit that. So yeah, I think that's where a, a team is really, really important. And where did you build the skills then to communicate the rollout of those ideas? Yeah, I think that was a lot of a lot to do with my sort of career history and and getting getting involved in those different areas of of development of of the web and then you know even working with startups like I I joined a startup in Sydney pretty much as there was another one of those roles where there was no such role as product so I was kind of like a front end engineer designer and then but I was really doing the product work too so I went you know we started in Sydney we raised money we went over to San Francisco. This is a while ago now. This is 2007, 2008. I was over there for a couple of years. Like I was next door to Twitter when they started. That's why I have a decent Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> Early days when it was like an SMS service. It was, it was a really fun time to be over there other than we, we hit like straight, straight into GFC. And yeah. we like, it was just kind of like one day everything was good. And then the next day I was like, that was your last paycheck. I um, mean, you can stay in America if you want. <laughs> you can find another job here. And then I was like, okay, well, uh, what do I do next? So, but I, from that, I love the, I love startup life. I love being on the roller coaster. You know, I love that yeah. idea that I guess it's kind of comes down to your risk profile. Like, do you want stability and consistency or do you like the fact that maybe you don't quite know what next week looks like or the thing that you think is amazing might go up in flames. Like you just, I think you just learn so much from, from that. I would hate to kind of be closed up to that because I was, I was too focused on only ever making safe bets. So I think it's like, yeah, it's probably a combination of yeah, working a bit in startups and then having gone through a bit of development, engineering, design, just to kind of have that, that I think reasonably well-rounded understanding because yeah, unless you're like sort of Steve Jobs kind of level, you can't just go and tell engineers, oh, I like just go and invent things. I just want, I just want the up to just work out 
like when my next like bills are like just work that out you know like just make that happen i don't care how you do it for me it's like well okay i want to i want to know that this is even buildable right like it's not just some crazy idea so being able to have have like enough of those tools and abilities to go and validate stuff in a way i think that gives me a license to then say all right this is i know enough to know that this is possible so i think that's probably you know, that probably helps a bit with respect from the engineers too, where it's like, no, this is not completely hairbrain. This might actually work, even yeah. if they don't necessarily see it exactly <laughs> at the start. I think once they've explored it a bit and I'm like, yeah, check this thing out. I wrote, uh, we kind of get to that point. So it works well. How do you think about product management at Up? I mean, the, you know, the, the process I think is uh, far more fluid than, than you might think, I guess. I think that, it probably goes back to our our perspective at, at, at kind of at the at the big picture level, which is, you know, we are essentially a software technology company coming into the financial space with very little experience in banking ourselves. A lot of experience using banking software and probably you'd say being a bit frustrated with it, you know, with it looking at it from a software mindset. So I think we're coming in at it saying, let's just rethink this. Like why why does it have to be this way? And also, what are the opportunities to innovate? Like, what are the what are the ways that we can take this from just kind of being this very basic tool? And, you know, instead of, say, an approach might just be, let's just make that tool as efficient and, you know, as fast as possible and get out of people's way. From our side of things, we've looked at it and said, look, there's an opportunity for us to really help people a lot more, right, than banking is is helping people, to, to connect people with their spending and to give them that understanding but, you know, with, with kind of an ambitious brief like that, the answers aren't necessarily obvious. So that's going to require some bets, right? We're going to have to make a few bets. Hopefully a few of them work out, but they probably all won't work out. So you kind of have that lens. And then you also have the lens of like, you just have to give people a reliable banking service that they trust with their money. That makes sense when they're coming from, say, a traditional bank or a mid-tier bank, you know, that, that have been around for decades or even you know over 100 years sometimes. So it's kind of this quite interesting space and it's a very mature market on, on one side of things too. So that's probably quite a complex answer in a sense, right? But this is quite a complex space in a lot of ways. It's not that we've identified, we're going to bring this framework into it, you know, necessarily. Although if you, if you, if you were going to point at anything that we've brought in, I think I would always go back to that kind of software technology mindset that we've applied to this financial space. Talk about what your relationship is like with your customers yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, very early days, really from the beginning, we've had this incredible channel in our app, which is called Talk To Us. And that was at first the way that we, to us, was just a natural way to give people a channel where they can get support, right? If anything goes wrong, if they have questions, just jump in the app, type out a message, like very messenger-like interface, you'll get a reply back, you know, within seconds or minutes. And we, that, that was just to us a no-brainer. It's like, we're not going to do phone, we're not going to have a big phone team answering, answering calls or do it over email. Let's just put it in the app. But it quickly became apparent that there was, we were kind of building this real dialogue and this relationship with customers through this channel. And it quickly expanded beyond support into feedback and ideas. And, hey, it'd be great if you guys would do this. Because I think the people were very excited to have a new player, right, in the, in the banking space. And as much as we were frustrated or thought that it could be a lot better. I think a lot of our customers, especially those early adopters, had exactly that same view. So they were really interested in being proactive to shape that. And, you know, kind of bringing that software mindset into banking too, the, the, the app that we launched with, you know, a couple of years ago, it was very, you know, minimum viable product. Like you couldn't actually even send, say, payments through the app to anyone else. So if you put money into it, you basically had to spend it on your card that was, or get, it out of, get cash out of an ATM. So we're coming in with a, very kind of lean MVP approach mm. into this mature space. And it became pretty apparent that we needed to give people like a sense of what that big picture was. Like, what are we working towards? Because we're going to have a lot of stuff next month and the month after that. So we published, you know, this public roadmap, which we called the tree of up. We sort of presented it in this very graphical interconnected way, which really reflected how we thought about building all of these pieces and this combination of stuff we're building, which is kind of, what people call table stakes functionality, functionality you just have to have as a bank, you know, being able to pay, be paid bills and transfer money to other accounts, things like that. And then this other stuff we're doing, which is very much the innovation side of it. How do we, you know, 
draw a picture for people of what their what their spending is looking like. How do we categorize that up and find those trends and predict bills and all of that sort of stuff? So I think it was kind of that combination of really realizing that we had to give people a sense of like where are we going? You know, now the cadence of us dropping releases in like the app store that's sort of our that's our velocity, right? So you kind of from from the public roadmap, the tree of up, and from you know just seeing how quickly we're, we're dropping releases, you kind of get a sense of here's where they're going and here's how fast they're going to get get there. And then through that channel in the app, it's very, it's sort of that, you know, uh, really regular back and forth. And it just has enabled us to really understand what, what customers are looking for, what they're excited about, having trouble with, you know, without having to sort of formalize that necessarily into, you know, like regular surveys or, or some of the other tools that maybe other, other products teams might have to use. You wrote a pretty amazing blog about a month ago on trust and building transparency. You said, don't be afraid to let your customers build on your brand. What did you mean by that? I guess, I, you know, I think really successful brands, they're successful in, in some sense because people can kind of take them on as, as their own and, and express themselves with a brand. I think ultimately that's essentially the definition of a, of a lifestyle brand. And so I think for us, it was, we wanted people to be able to to do that with up to, to for it not to be this kind of a sign up on the top of a big building downtown, but to be something that people could uh, wear on a t-shirt or, or put a sticker on their laptop, or you know, in the case of our API, connect up to this data and, and build some quirky, crazy app of their own with it and start to kind of control that or contribute to the experience. Because ultimately, I think you know a lot of brands will talk to like, well, yeah, you can help shape what this is by filling out this feedback form. Mm. And that's certainly, that does contribute, but it's, it's not, there's no visibility of that to anybody else. It's just kind of, you have to just trust that that happens. Whereas I think uh, with, you know, with, with social media where it's at, uh, you know, there are opportunities to do that in a far more engaging way that you can bring pe- other people in through, through our customers. And particularly in this space, it's so important for us to, to have that, you know, social proof for people to, but for a new customer who might be nervous about trying a new bank to see the, the engagement and the advocacy out there in the community is, is really key for us. I think that's also super key to the mission that you guys are trying to do again, which is just deepening our relationship with money and making it fun to deal with your finances, fun to save, fun to spend, because you do have greater transparency, which then is the perfect feedback loop into building trust. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, I think that that's kind of the ultimate, like on the scale of how can you, how can you engage people uh, with their finances better, right? Like at, at one end of the scale is like, like don't make it too painful. <laughs> but at the other end is like, can you make this actually fun? Like are, are there, you know, I, I think that's something that I, you know, I love to do in the product space is, is not as look, you know, outside your own, own industry for inspiration and you know when you're an app when you're some when you're essentially this completely software-based entity if you look at what you know what's the most compelling software out there it's like it's games it's gaming and what what can we learn from that from you know from titles from from you know from those experiences out there and what can we bring into into our own what can we borrow what do we think it's going to get people more engaged. Some of those mechanisms that we can we can find, and mm. you know, I think there's there's a whole ton of you know like amazing innovation that's not just two rights innovation, you know, in cosmetics companies branding and 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 changing their identity from you know the the traditional you know every bottle's like in English and French for some reason to something that can be far more genuine and. You know, yeah, I think exactly. that's, that there's something that in banking that's a similar, like you know, we, maybe we can talk like a real human and still be a bank that people trust. <laughs> it's funny that the step change, just like the step change is to just be yourself. And that's innovative yeah. in itself. <laughs> it, it's kind of that thing though, right? Like where like there's this quote about like, uh, you know, I think it's like always attributed to Mark Twain and he, it's like a letter he wrote where he's like, you know, sorry for the length of this letter. I'm going to totally mess this up. But it's like, if I, you know, I would have made it shorter, but I didn't have enough time. Right. Like it, <laughs> it, it takes time to kind of distill stuff down, which is not necessarily intuitive. And I think it's the kind of, maybe there's a parallel there with, with being real uh, or being authentic is that, well, I, I think that the, the kind of like 
officious, banky tone of voice, it kind of lets you, it gives you something to hide behind, right? Like it's like, well, this is just the, this is just the way it's going to be. You're just going to have to wait two business days for X, Y, or Z, right? Because this is banking and this is just, this is just the way it is. If you are going to be more personable and, and more real, you kind of have to back that up with delivering stuff when people want it and being answerable to that. Like, no, it's not good enough to just accept these standard fees or these standard delays, like, because that's, you know, that's, that's not really, that's going to, I don't know, it's just not a modern uh, human thing. It's like this, these old bureaucratic kind of ideals that have, that have been there. So I feel like it's kind of like a, it's not that, Hey, you just have to be, just take your tie off and all of a sudden you can be casual again. It's kind of like, you're only able to do it if you can back it up, I guess. Mm. What it seems like a huge part of your role is to get clear on what the roadmap is. And so much of that is driven by, I guess, questions you might ask yourself to get to that clarity. And we know that the best products just seem so simple, but as you sort of talked about with Mark Twain, it takes a lot of time to get to that degree of simplicity. Are you able to share anything that helps you, any questions that help you sort of refine to a state where it becomes totally simple? Yeah, I think it's, I think part of it is just completely immersing yourself in, in the problem and in the space because it is, I think, a process. You can't necessarily shortcut it it's not just coming up with the best idea. It, it is thinking about how everything connects. You know, I think it's a, a big part of uh, what makes up special is the way everything connects in with each other. Like I often internally use like the analogy that, you know, up is like the, the iMac, right. Compared to say a traditional bank's PC tower, where it's like, you, you know, you, with a traditional bank, you can have like three mortgages and, 14 joint accounts and club accounts and this X, Y, and Z, right? You can basically create whatever you want. Whereas with up, it's very much like that curated experience where there is, there is less choice in terms of variety, but the stuff that is there just works really well with each other, with each other. So that, that I think comes from a recognition that it's not the individual features themselves so much as the way that it all fits together. And I think like the process for that is often, less around formal processes and and i think it's just kind of creative creativity and thinking and like you know riding your bike or having a shower and all of a sudden you'll you'll it'll kind of come to you like how this new feature fits in with everything else that we've built and i think you know that's kind of the dream is to how can we continue to make this a more powerful and capable product without like just massively ratcheting up the complexity because there are there's heaps of really capable powerful software apps out there but most of them are also really complex and and have a really steep learning curve and we're trying to appeal to you know a 16 year old or an 18 year old that maybe has never really engaged with a bank before this is essentially the first bank it's certainly the first bank i've chosen and we need to make sense to them we can't just be this real power user experience that has just insane next level concepts, but is almost impossible to get a, get your head around. So yeah, I think it's the only way for that to work is for, you know, to have this, the sense of how everything connects together, because for us that, that means we can keep things simple because we're sort of relying on, you know, established patterns or established behaviors uh, or functionality that, you know, this, this functions always exist, existed. It's just now that you can apply it to this new thing we've shipped as well. I do have to say you're the, the chief imaginer. You are the chief imaginer at, at Frosher. I was thinking that is one of the most incredible titles I've ever seen. What is your process for imagining? I think it's, I, I'm a big believer, I guess. I guess, it, you know, in product, there, I think there are, there are different approaches, maybe different schools. And some yeah. of them are, you know, there's kind of the design centered, what am I trying to say? Like use it like design research type of stuff where, you know, you, you are basically a sort of an anthropologist and you go out and you, you're, you're an excellent interviewer and you're excellent at understanding what people are trying to do and then delivering a really great solution for that. And I think that's almost a, a, a whole discipline of, you know, of, of product management. I think what I do is more probably in the creativity and innovation side of it. Like I see it, I see products work as essentially 
a creative enterprise. So I'm less probably guided by frameworks and processes and more guided by like, I guess, intuition and creativity. And I guess I'll, I have the luxury of, of working with an amazing engineering team and an amazing, uh, you know, supporting product and design team too, where mm. that can work. So I think it's, yeah, it's kind of like creating a picture where things, things fit together really well. The, the like ideas connect, but, you know, also that we can, you know, I think the art of it is in finding ways to validate this stuff, right? Like it's, it's all, it's all good to have this amazing master plan, but you know, you can't, you can't ship that day one. So you need to find a way to incrementally build that uh, and to acknowledge that like you might not end up building what you thought you were going to build on day one. It's probably going to be a bit different, you know, on day 300 or 600. Mm. Listen, thank you so much for your time, Anson. Yeah, no worries at all, mate. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email. Wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you'll subscribe. And if you like the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you in a fortnight.